you all ready to continue our series in Revelation? Um, Moment of Clarity is the name of the series, Moment of Clarity, because um, I think what John's doing in this book, what God's doing in this book, is he's giving his people a moment of clarity on their world um, and him and his purposes. But also I wanted to go through it so we could have a moment of clarity. Um, I think over the past five weeks we've realized this book ain't as spooky or scary as it might seem on the outset. Um, so Revelation will be in chapter 15 and 16 today. Um, what this is, is we're going to talk about uh, seven bowls of God's wrath. Um, and these seven bowls of wrath tie up a series of visions that John has throughout the book. It starts with seven seals, then goes to seven trumpets, and finally climaxes at seven bowls of wrath. Um, they're all describing God's judgment between the time of Christ's first coming and second coming. They're cyclical in which the, the pictures of that judgment intensifies. So this covers Revelation um, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and then it ties up in 15 and 16. Um, before we get going, there are two thoughts that I want to put out there um, because there are two ways that I think we could react or respond to a passage about God's wrath that might not be helpful. Um, the first is we could think about God being a God of wrath and judgment and think, oh, I don't like that too much. Um, I don't actually think that's him. Um, and passages that talk about it, um, specifically for people like me, preachers, we'll get up here and we'll preach the greatest hits um, and not talk about God's wrath at all. Um, I tend to avoid texts like these. Um, but there's a woman named Barbara Brown Taylor. She's a preacher um, and, a Bible, and a preaching teacher. She said this. Can you pull up the quote from Barbara? She says, um, they, talking about texts that talk about um, aspects of God that we're not too privy to. She says, these kind of texts pry our fingers away from our own ideas about who God should be and how God should act so that there are only two things left for us to do with our fear Um, in response to texts like this. We can use it to propel us towards the God who is or let it sink us like a stone. We may try to protect ourselves from from tossing out inflatable bits of comfort and advice. That means we can try to to, um, ease these texts, we can try to water them down and talk our way out of receiving God as he presents himself. So she said we could toss out inflatable bits of comforts and advice, or we may find the courage to forsake those twigs and swim for our lives towards the living God. Um, A little bit later in this book, it's a great book, she says, when it comes down to texts like this and our, our perspective on these texts, she says, The core question is, do we think God is competent enough to run the universe as sovereign God or not? Um, And I think our answer is yes. So we receive God even in all of this wrath that he will present today. Um, In the second one, we might hear texts like this and hear about God's wrath or judgment and think, ah, ain't too important to me. That's not one of my favorite topics. I don't like to focus on that too much. Um, There's a guy named Phil Moore. He's in Europe. He says this. Um, can you put up the film more? Oh, it's up there. Um, <laughs> uh, Phil says, if Jesus is tackling a question that you're not even asking, it's a warning that the thinking of your culture has drifted a long way from the truth. Jesus is coming back like an unexpected thief, and it's time for us to stop fighting him over his justice and to join in the worship of the angels and the martyrs. Other readers, this is the line that got me, other readers live under the shadow of abuse oppression, bullying, and injustice. And they are far more in tune with the cry of these chapters. Um, He's saying what we're about to read is good news to somebody, even if it ain't good news to us who live in a perpetual state of comfort 
and abundance. Um, I heard Charles Spurgeon say, he says, if God thought it was important enough to be in the scripture, then it's important enough for us to read and to, uh, to receive. So let's receive this. All right, stand with me. Revelation 15. Um, the way this is written, Revelation 15 and 16 are one, are one picture that John gets. Revelation 15 is the introduction or the prologue. Revelation 16 is the actual vision. Starting in Revelation 15, John said, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked in the sanctuary of the tent of witness and heavens was open. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to seven angels uh, seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one can enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels are finished. And here are the plagues. And then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. If y'all remember our um, series through Exodus over the summer, all of these plagues mirror plagues that God, God put on the Egyptians in the book of Exodus. Um, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire, and they scorch, were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish, and cursed, and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dry dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Uh, some of y'all have seen a movie that is slightly based off of this, inspired by this, let's say that. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them from battle, to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Then here's a parenthetical note. Jesus, he's jumping into the vision, and now he's talking to us. Jesus says, behold, pay attention. I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Now John gets back to the picture. And they, that's the kings, assembled them at the place in, that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. 
And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since there was on earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drink, drain the cup of wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Father, we, we thank you for your word. Present yourself to us. We want to receive you. We want to embrace you. Show us who you are, Jesus. Amen. Uh, you can be seated. Uh, the title of this uh, talk will be Facts. Facts. That'll be our title for today. Um, I think there are some facts that God presents to us that, 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 that'll push us on into faithfulness as the rest of this book has. Um, so here's a great way to start a sermon. I'm sure some of you love to hear your preacher say this. I was scrolling on Instagram this week and, um, uh, I saw this post that I really like. I think it was like a Sunday school teacher or a Christian school teacher who had, I think, uh, first grade students. Um, and they had some questions about God. They had some thoughts about God. They had some opinions. And she wanted to give them an opportunity to express those. And so she had them write letters to God. So this Instagram post that I'm reading is 30 letters written by first graders expressing their thoughts and questions to God. Um, I brought six of them. Can I read them? Yes. Cool. You don't have a choice. I have the microphone. Um, <laughs> first one, first one. Uh, Dear God, my grandpa said you were around when he was a little boy. How far back do you go? Love, Dennis. Here, here's another one. Dear God, I bet it's very hard for you to love everybody in the whole world. There are only four people in my family, and I could never do it. <laughs> love, Nan. Dear God, maybe Cain and Abel wouldn't kill each other so much if they had their own rooms. It works for me and my brother. Love, Larry. Dear God, thank you for the baby brother. But what I prayed for was a puppy. Joyce. <laughs> She didn't say love in hers. Uh, here's one that I resonate with a lot. Um, dear God, on Halloween, I'm going to wear a devil's costume. Is that cool with you? Uh, I think some of you, I've told some of y'all, um, we didn't celebrate Halloween. We celebrated Hallelujah Night at the church. And um, while all my friends are running around dressed like ghosts, I dressed the same and told my grandmother I was the Holy Ghost. Um, that's what Marty needs to do. Um, here's the last one. Here's the last one. I, this, I pray the children in, in Christ kids never say this about me. Um, dear God, is Reverend Co a friend of yours or do you just know him through business? Love, Danny. <laughs> Ooh. Um, so, so these kids, they had, they had things on the inside of them that they wanted to express. Um, through our passage, through this vision, God, he's preaching to us and he's saying, it is a fact that I'm going to express myself. He's saying, I intend to express myself. How, how do I know that? John, he gives us two aspects of this vision. The first aspect he gives us is he says that John looked in the sanctuary where God dwells was full of smoke. What he's doing is he's pulling from Isaiah chapter six, where God reveals or expresses himself to Isaiah and fills the temple with smoke. Then John later, he says, um, there, 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 there's thunder, there was lightning, there were earthquakes that knocked me off my feet. He's pulling from Exodus 19 and 20, where God revealed or expressed himself to Moses on the mountain, on Mount Sinai. So, so God's pointing back to these times where he expressed himself in the past 
to let you know I intend to express myself again. And what is it that he intends to express? Um, um, uh, look at what they said in the sign in the song. They said, "For your righteous acts have been revealed. You, you, you've expressed your righteousness. God's intending to express His righteousness. You know what righteousness is, right? It's the act of being. It's the state of being right, doing right, being in right relationship with people. It's the flip side of justice, which is treating people right." God says, I'm go- I, I, I intend to express my righteousness. Now, 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 right quick, let me pause for a cause. I talked to some kids at Ozark about this a few months ago. Um, I want to share it with us because I think if we're not careful, when we start talking about God's righteousness or justice, we, we, we will do our own analysis on God to see if we come to that conclusion, if he is right or just or not. We'll look at God throughout Scripture and say, oh, I don't think that's just. I don't think that's righteous. But but I think that that kind of thinking betrays a wrong way of thinking, a wrong posture. Um, check what this woman, Jackie Hill Perry, says. She says, um, you've been tricked into thinking that your human feelings and thoughts hold weight in the moral universe as if God isn't the ultimate authority on what's good. Uh, there's no moral authority higher than God. God himself is the standard by which all right and wrong is determined, by which all righteousness and evil is determined, which is to say that whatever is good morally is whatever is like God. Yes, that's right. Um, this summer I read a book by a man named A.W. Pink. He was talking about God's righteousness, and he said this. He says, uh, God is a law or a standard unto himself. Whatever he does is right. So, so, so here's what I'm saying. I'm saying steer clear of performing your own righteousness analysis on God as if God is submitted to some standard outside of himself. No, no, no. There is no standard of righteousness that God meets because God himself is the standard of righteousness. And here's, here's my fear. I fear that if we, if we live and operate under these standards that, that aren't God, we're depending on human reasoning for a concept of righteousness more than we're depending on God's revelation. And our, our, our concept of righteousness is, is, is formed by human hands more than it's formed by God's revelation. Then our concept of righteousness start looking like our political affiliation or, or, or the culture of us growing up or, or that which was all right when we were coming up in the world or, or our feelings. And here's what happened. We'll take that standard and we'll try to impose it on God. And what we'll end up doing is making God fit our picture of righteousness, which might look like taking out texts like this or ignoring texts like this. We'll try to make it fit on God or we'll realize God doesn't fit and walk away from him because it don't sit right with us. I'm telling you, you try to project a standard of righteousness on God, you will inevitably end up in apostasy or idolatry. Those are your options. God himself is the standard of righteousness. He's righteousness in 4D. Righteousness in 3D, righteousness in HD. He's, he's righteousness written out and described in a language you can understand. And he says, I intend to express it. And here's the big fact. Here's the good news of the passage. God is looking at people who've seen wrong and who are living under wrong. And he's saying, I'm going to express my righteousness. He's looking at people who've seen children abused and neglected by the hands that should be caring for them. And he says, I'm going to express my righteousness there. 
He's looking to people who've seen women trafficked across the country for some money and saying, I'm going to express my righteousness there. He's looking at people who've had their characters assassinated in the court of public opinion and saying, I'm going to express my righteousness there. He's saying, I'm going to express my righteousness in a world full of wrong. How's he going to do it? How's he going to do it? You you notice what was happening in this text as we were reading it. As God was enacting, pouring out this wrath on people, there are people saying, that's just judgment. He's expressing his righteousness by judging justly. God says, I intend to express my righteousness by judging evil. Now here, I'm done picking on the West after I say this. Um, Those of us in the West, a common question that we can find in our friend groups or in our own mind is how can a good, righteous God also show wrath? Listen to me, come close. For God to be righteous, he has to oppose evil. For God to be righteous, he has to adamantly expose wrong. So God's wrath is not a cause of of questioning his righteousness. God's wrath is an expression of that righteousness because he's opposing evil. And he's saying, I I intend to express my righteousness through judgment. That's your big fact for the day. I could sit down and and leave it at that. God, God intends to express his righteousness by judging evil. Um, but this text, it gives us three smaller facts. The, these facts tell us what, what this judgment might look like. So I just want to run through these three right quick. Here's the first one. Write it down. Um, judgment might look like judging wrongdoers. Do you see throughout this passage who are the recipients of these bowls of wrath being poured out? It says those who gave themselves to, to, to the beast. Um, that, that's from last week. Those who devo- devoted themselves to this anti-God, human-centered power. Um, those who ended up cursing God. Those who wouldn't repent of their deeds. That means they had been doing wrong and they've still been committed to doing wrong. These are the recipients of this, these bowls, this judgment that God is pouring out on people. God, this is who God's always been. Old Testament and New Testament. Now, I know we don't like Old Testament Jesus because he's mean. So let's jump to New Testament Jesus. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, we all have to come before the throne and God will give us what's due for what we've done, whether it be good or evil. God judges evil. Uh, Now, there are two ways that this might look, and I lean towards one way, and I'll tell you why in a second. On one end, this might be God's active wrath. You remember that Sunday morning when Ananias and Sapphira walked into church late talking about all that money they gave away? Turns out they were lying to the church people and to the Holy Spirit, and then they just died right there. That, that's God's active wrath. It's him actively enacting punishment on you for evil. But then Romans talk about, talks about this thing called God's passive wrath. Romans says that, that people are so committed to evil that God, he reveals his wrath. And what's that wrath look like? It says that wrath looks like God giving them over to their desires. He's letting people continue on in their sinfulness. He's letting people continue on in their wrongdoing. I think that's what's happening in this passage. Because after God pours out his wrath on people, it doesn't say they die. It says, no, they cursed God and didn't repent. I think God was letting them continue on in that wrongdoing. So so, so um, back in February, Valentine's Day weekend, my wife and I, Chelsea, 
we went to Iowa to preach, um, for me to preach um, at a friend's church. Um, and uh, we were hoping they'd be real good boys. That was our first time leaving them alone with somebody for an extended amount of time. So we were like, please be real good boys. Please be real good boys. One of my boys was a good boy. Um, Roscoe was a real good boy. Uh, Tank was a real bad boy that weekend. Um, the, 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 the kid who watched Tank Forest, he sent his pictures and Tank grown man number two at my front door. Um, Tank peed all on my carpet. Tank, Tank ate yarn and cotton and all kinds of stuff. We got home. Um, and Tank walks up to Chelsea and I while we're in the kitchen, walks up to me and Tank, looks me in my eyeballs in my kitchen, in my house that I pay rent for and pees right in front of me on that floor. <laughs> so then my wrath starts bubbling up on him. So then I kick him out the door. Um, and if you remember Valentine's Day weekend this year, it was like negative eight degrees outside that weekend. So, so it tanks out there for all of like two minutes. And I thought, okay, he's got to come back in. Um, I can't let him freeze to death. So I open the door and I yell, Tank, come on. And he's just out there frolicking in the ice, being real foolish. And I say, Tank, come on. He looks at me, walks to the other side of the yard, and keeps on frolicking. So then I put on some shoes and walk outside. Tank, come on. He looks at me, walks to the other side of the yard, and keeps on frolicking. So, so then I yelled some stuff at him, um, some stuff that I can't say right now in this moment because I'm preaching. Um, and I've matured since then, but I yelled some stuff at him. And uh, one of the last things I said to him was, well, die then, then slammed the door and walked inside. He ended up coming inside. He's alive still. Um, <laughs> don't project my emotion on God, but I want to give you a picture that um, I, I let Tank continue on in that foolishness and drift closer to freezing to death. Uh, God's passive wrath is him letting us continue to drift into our foolishness, our evil, our wickedness, closer and closer towards death, which is separation from him. So, 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 listen to me. Those of us who see people doing wrong, those of us who see wrong being done in the world and wondering, is this ever going to stop? God, are you going to do something about this? The fact that they're increasing in that evil might be a sign that God is doing something. The, the fact that they're continuing in that sin and going deeper into that sin and deeper into that sin might be a sign that God's enacting his passive wrath and just letting them go into it. Now, let me exhort us. We ought to periodically pause for the cause and thank God that we're still convicted of sin. I'm not saying thank God that you do sin. Thank God that you still hate that you sin. The fact that you're still convicted of sin means God has not let you go. It means he's being compassionate. It means he's being merciful. It means he's saying, no, I'm not enacting this passive wrath on you people. So, 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 so just thank God that I still get convicted of it. I like that song, Prone to Wander. Lord, I feel it. I feel it deep down in here. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. The fact that you still feel conviction means God's already sealed it. And he's saying, I'm not letting you wander off from me. But God says in this passage, there is a time where I intend to judge evildoers with that kind of passive wrath. Here's the second one. Um, judgment might look like vindicating his people. Judgment might look like God vindicating his people. 
Uh, y'all remember those episodes of Tom and Jerry um, where Tom's running around and he sees that little puppy dog and he ends up ringing that puppy dog up by the neck and throwing it around and banging on it and all kinds of stuff. And that puppy's dog, big old dog, daddy, big old pit bull, I think his name was Brutus, walks out and then sees Tom beating on his baby and he beats on Tom. The big dog got the person who got his child. What I'm trying to tell you is you got a big old God who's going to get them people who got you. That, that, that's what he's telling us in this text. He says, he says, as God's pouring out his wrath on people, he says, one of the angels says, these people who, who, who are experiencing these, this judgment, he said, they shed the blood of the prophets and the saints. Now you're making them drink blood. It's what they deserve. Then, then, then it says, the altar says, yes, that's true. In Revelation chapter 6, John tells us about the altar. Inside the altar are the souls of the saints who've been wronged, who've died at the hands of injustice. So when John points to these saints and their souls who've experienced injustice, they're agreeing, yes, God is doing right by us. God is vindicating us. God is getting the people who got us. God will get the people who got you. That, that, that's why in Romans 12, Paul says, don't repay evil for evil. Leave that for the day of wrath, this passage. For God says, vengeance is mine. God makes himself out to be your avenger. So some, some of you, you've been abused pretty bad. You've been wronged pretty bad. You've been sinned against in the dark and in the shadows, and you're wondering, does anyone see? God saw. Does anyone hear? God heard. Does anyone know? God knows. Does anyone care? God cares. Will anyone do anything for me? God says, I will. Because of that, Paul goes on and he says, instead, we can focus on doing good to the people who did wrong to us. I know that takes faith. I'm saying our God says, no, I'll get you. I'll get them for you. Now you're free to do good. Oh, my goodness, church. I wish we had this posture when it comes to our political and societal engagement. I know you feel wronged by this party. I know you feel impringed upon by these people. But what if we knew that God vindicates us, that God uh, is our avenger so we don't engage in politics or society to fight back at the people who we feel did us wrong? What if instead we engaged in politics and society committed to do good because we knew God was our avenger? What if we committed to, to engage in these things by doing good to those who wronged us? What if we committed to doing good for the marginalized and the oppressed? I don't got to worry about myself anymore because God's got my back now. What if we engage like that? Man, that'd be a cold church. God, God, God says it might look like me vindicating my people. Here's the last one. Um, God says it might look like me erasing evil. Judgment might look like God erasing evil. Um, so uh, the angels pour out that sixth bowl, the next to last one. And it's this crazy scene, the movie scene where it says that river dried up and these kings were influenced by the devil and the beast to, to come to this, uh, valley called Armageddon where they, where they went out to wage war against God. Armageddon is probably the valley in the Old Testament called Megiddo. M-E-G-G-I-D-O is I think how it's spelled. And Megiddo is where God's enemies go to get defeated. Um, for instance, in Judges 5, uh, Deborah, um, uh, she, the woman with the tent peg thing, she, she, she's talking about when the Canaanites came at God, and it was like God defeated them in the valley of Megiddo. Um, 
Even one of Israel's kings, he had rejected God to the point to where he became an enemy of God, and he's opposing God, and it's in the battle of Megiddo that God sends Josiah Josiah down. Megiddo is where God's enemies go go to be defeated. So when John says they're all gathered in this valley, Armageddon or Megiddo, John's saying, God's defeating these enemies of his. But it doesn't end there. Because then a little bit later, it says that God ends up ends up defeating that great city, Babylon. Babylon stands for, she represents human-centered anti-God systems. But it don't end there. God talks, or John says later in the book of Revelation that God ends up putting Satan in a lake of fire and the beast in a lake of fire and the false prophet in a lake of fire. Don't end there. John says God ends up putting death in a lake of fire. Don't end there. John ends the book and says not only are those things gone, all of their effects, mourning, pain, sadness, I'm wiping that out too. What's John showing us? John is saying God is erasing the causes of evil and all their effects. John, he'd present a rhetorical question to you and he'd say, hypothetical question, friend. If God were in a walk into a room where a faucet had been running for so long that that the sink overflowed and flooded the room, what would God do? Trick question. Here's what God would do. John says God would mop up the water and turn off the faucet. He's saying that God, God, God addresses the causes and the effects. Uh, Gen Z millennials, college students, listen to me. Don't you let nobody convince you that you got to choose between God or addressing widespread systemic evil and injustice. Don't you let nobody make you choose God or addressing evil and injustice. Listen, if anyone opposes evil widespread, it's God. God God says, no, I'm out to get the causes and the effects of it. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. People, I applaud people in our efforts to go for the for the effects, going for the effects of unjust laws, unjust systems, oppression and things of that sort. But it's only God who can get the the cause of sin and Satan and evil. Hey, here, I'll pull for my heritage. I'm saying God is good enough to address any widespread evil. If God was good enough for Sojourner Truth in fighting slavery, if God was good enough for Frederick Douglass in fighting white supremacy, if God was good enough for Dr. King and fighting segregation, I'm saying God is good enough for me for whatever widespread evil and injustice we're looking at. He's not just good enough. He's more than good enough because not only is he's fighting it, he's absolutely eradicating it. So I'm saying stick with God. Don't you let them don't you let them convince you you got to walk away. No, I'd like to propose that the only way. We can address widespread evil and injustices by sticking with God. So God says, look, 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 I, I intend to express my righteousness through judgment. That judgment might look like might look like letting people slip off into their their foolishness and wrongdoing. It might look like getting the people who got my people. It might look like erasing evil. He says, this is what I intend to do. But but can I take a moment before I sit down and tell you about what what he what he has done? I've been talking about God who says, I intend to show my righteousness. The whole scripture from a 30,000 point of view, foot, uh, point of view shows us that God has already expressed his righteousness. Um, I don't remember the man's first name, but he was a mayor of New York during the Great Depression. He's who the LaGuardia Airport is named after. Apparently, he was that dude when he was in office in New York. Um, true story. I saw it on the Internet. So that, well, that's not a credible statement, is it? <laughs> Uh, I think true story. I saw it on the internet. That made it seem credible. Um, 
Um, it's not a preacher story, I promise. Like, I read it on the... Oh, whatever. Um, so uh, they, they said homie used to ride through the streets of New York City on fire trucks just to be seen by the public. They said he used to um, raid speakeasies with the NYPD. They said he used to um, take whole orphanages to baseball games. Uh, they said that during the Depression, when I think the newspapers went on strike, that Mayor LaGuardia got on the airport and read little kids the Sunday comics. He was like that guy in his heyday. Um, and the story I read was that um, one day he wanted to give um, the judge of a, of a district court a break for a night. So he walks over to the, to the court, sees the judge, tells him, hey, you can go home. I'll sit tonight as acting judge. And as soon as he sits down on the seat, uh, it said this old woman gets carried in by this business owner. And the business owner's yelling, she stole from my shop. She stole from me. You need to hold her accountable. This is a terrible neighborhood. You need to punish her so everyone can know that this ain't nothing to be played with. So the judge looks at the woman and says, is it true? She says, yeah, it's true. And he says, well, the law demands that you be held accountable. It makes no leeway for this. And so he said, here's your fine. Uh, $10 will be your fine. And as he's saying your fine will be $10, they say he's reaching into his pocket and pulls $10 out throws that thing on the desk and says, and there's the payment for her fine. Her debt is canceled and this woman is free to go. Um, that, that, that man paid the fine. He, he showed his commitment to righteousness by showing that no, no righteousness has to be done. But he also showed a way for that woman to be right. Here, here I've been telling you about, about, about what will happen, but I want to tell you about what already has happened. Um, here's what already happened. The judge underwent judgment. Uh, I've been telling you about how God intends to express his righteousness, but I want to end by telling you how God has already expressed his righteousness. Uh, I've been talking to you about how God said, I will judge, but I want to show you about how God already went judge, already underwent judgment. So, so my Bible tells me that Jesus is God who will judge all evildoers. But my Bible also tells me that Jesus is God who underwent judgment for all evil done. My my Bible tells me that Jesus is God who will pour out the cups of wrath on evil. But my Bible also tells me that Jesus is God who drank that cup of wrath himself. My my Bible tells me that Jesus is God who will shout, it is finished or it is done as he judges evil from heaven's throne. But he's also God who shouted, it is finished as he underwent judgment on Calvary's cross. But my, my Jesus, he showed his commitment to righteousness by showing that, no, I oppose evil so much that I thought it was to die for. But he also showed his way for you to be right by dying your death so you could live. I like what Romans says. Paul says, all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have earned the death penalty. But Jesus looked at you who deserved to die and died for you so you could live. So I just want to stop, take a minute, praise God, and say on that cross where Jesus died, All the wrath of God was satisfied. On him, every sin was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live, I live, I live, I live. The judge underwent judgment. He's saying, see the cross and see my righteousness. First thing he says, "See see my way for you to be right. All of us have done wrong. And some of us right now are living under such a burden of guilt for what we've done to people. And you're asking, is there ever a chance for me to actually live a a good life with God? Jesus says, look at my cross. 
The answer is yes. I died so you can live with God. I died so you can be right with God. All you got to do is receive me. He says, also, see my commitment to righteousness. Some of you who've been wronged and you've heard, heard this sermon, heard a passage like this, and you ask, will God actually do good by me? Will he actually enact justice for me? He says, look at my cross. Yes. If I thought it was serious enough, if I was so committed to die on Calvary, of course I'm committed enough to, to, to show my righteousness in vindicating you. But here's the big application I think John has for this passage. I don't think John was writing this passage to tell the church just about what God's going to do to them out there. I think John's writing this passage to show the church this might happen to some of us in here. These are Christians in Turkey who are on the brink of walking away from Jesus and going in another direction. And I think John's showing them this, this vision, God's intentions to, to, to judge evil by saying, this is what's on the other side of that door if you walk out. This is what's on the other side of that decision. I'm not saying God's impending judgment is the only motivation for obedience and sticking with Jesus. I don't even think it's our first motivation. I think our first, first motivation for sticking with Jesus is loving him. But this is in the mix. John's saying, this is on the other side of that, friends. So stick with him. Oh, I pray that God, God, God plants these facts deep in our heart.